Welcome back to episode seven of Outgrowing the Good Christian Girl, and I am beyond excited about this episode with Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler. I really wanted someone who would just dive into the, the passages in the Bible about women in the church and women in marriage and our roles. This is a topic near and dear to my heart. As someone who always felt called to speak, I was in a church for a while that said women had to be silent, like not even give announcements on a Sunday. And I really wrestled with these passages that at face value seemed so clear. And yet the fruit of that in my life did not seem like the fruit of the spirit. It seemed like death instead of life and bondage instead of freedom. And I just wrestled with what does it mean to be a woman? Like what does biblical womanhood look like? And so today I'm super excited for this interview. We're just gonna like go through some of the main passages from Ephesians 5 to 1 Timothy 2. Like we're just gonna dive in and it is mind blowing. I'm so excited. Her name is Amy Peeler. Dr. Reverend Amy Peeler. She's an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, and she's also an associate rector at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Geneva, Illinois. She's written several books, including one called You Are My Son, which is the family of God in the Epistle to the Hebrews, and also she's co-authored a book called Hebrews, an Introduction and Study Guide. She has a book coming out soon on Mary and the Fatherhood of God coming in 2022, and she is passionate to cultivate a love for scripture as well as proclaim that the Christian God values women. She's married to a church organist and liturgical scholar. His name is Lance and they both enjoy travel to the UK, CrossFit, and fun with their three kids. So I'm super excited to welcome Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler and to dive into scripture with her. Dr. Peeler, I am so excited to have you here on the podcast today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, Just it's really so nice appreciate it. to meet you in this way. I feel like we get to meet each other and uh, the opportunity to speak on this subject is really a gift to me, so I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm so excited. Well, we'll dive right in. The first thing that we're looking at in each of our podcast episodes is the fruit of our belief systems, because you know Jesus said, you know a tree by the fruit it bears. And so would you tell us your own personal experience? What did you grow up believing about women's roles and specific, like what the Bible said about them and how that applied to your life? Yeah, great question. So I grew up in Oklahoma City. And the, uh, the Southern Baptist denomination is very prominent in Oklahoma. And sure. so that's where my family was. I had a really rich church experience. I had a pastor who had strong exegetical, but also really compassionate sermons. Mm. My Sunday school teachers and youth pastor, my youth pastor especially was an incredible mentor in my life. So on one hand, I want to affirm the good of my church context. I was yeah. taught to love scripture. And I think that's really where the seeds of my vocation were planted. On the other mm -hmm. hand, being Southern Baptist in the 90s, basically, I never saw women in leadership. Uh, they mm -hmm. weren't you know, on the pastoral staff. Uh, they were in the choir or whatever the case. But my congregation was not one that kind of beat that drum. They were not mm -hmm. like a culture war church. And mm -hmm. so I really, it was just never on my radar. Uh, the other thing that should be said is that as I was a teenager going through the youth group, I was that kid that wanted to be at church every day. I mean, clearly there were some indications that I was yeah. in this direction. And I was, <laughs> I was welcomed. I was put into leadership. So I was a youth intern. Wow. I was uh, allowed to, you know, lead youth messages or whatever. Nobody ever talked about like, is this okay? Or women, I was pretty much welcomed in, affirmed, given the opportunity at, to exercise my gifts. So, um, so there was cool. a lot of good. Um, mm. The other thing that probably uh, the sermons I did hear about pretty often were sermons on marriage. So female mm. submission in marriage was mm -hmm. a theme that came up. And I remember it, I think, because we would go home and my mom would say, I don't buy into this. Oh, um, wow. she, didn't, she didn't embrace it. And I so clearly remember saying to her, but it's what the Bible says. You should <laughs> do this. I was advocating this position. But I think she gave me a picture of a faithful Christian who could mm. disagree on that mm. topic. And mm -hmm. even that was really important in my formation. Yeah. So a lot of good, but also nobody for me to see as an example. And so when I went into biblical studies, like serving God on my, at the church in the church was 
just a thought that never occurred to me. It was totally really? off my radar. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So when you went for biblical studies, were you thinking being a professor or something outside the church, essentially? Precisely, precisely. Oh, okay. So I started college as a counseling major. I wanted to journey with people through their difficulties. But as a junior, I took a few electives uh, in Greek, uh, Life of Christ. And really within the first week of that semester, I had changed my major. Wow. Um, I was like, this is it. Biblical wow. studies is what I want to do with my life. And then the first question I asked was, can I teach college age men as a woman? And so my professor uh, encouraged me to do my junior thesis paper, my hermeneutics paper on First Timothy 2. And so that's where I first started asking these questions, but always only focused on the academy. Mm. Wow. Okay. This is, oh my goodness. I just love that. She asked you to do your thesis on that. Okay, so um, I well, know... Well, and I should say, it was yeah. a he. There were no female Bible professors. Oh, wow. And, and he is a wonderful mentor in my life. And I really appreciated that, I mean, he affirms women in all spaces, uh-huh. but he didn't tell me his own thoughts. He allowed me to do the exegesis myself and come to my own conclusions. And I think pedagogically, that was really powerful. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to skip around to my questions here because I'm so curious about this. So what, let's just talk about that um, 1 Timothy 2. Would you, that's one of the main passages that people Mm -hmm. turn to when defining a woman's roles. And so would you kind of help us understand like, what is this passage about? Like what message should we take from it? And I'll actually just read um, a few verses from it. It says, women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and so on. Um, The passage (laughs) continues from there. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. I have talked to a lot of students, a lot of friends and people who say, if it wasn't for first Timothy two, I could support Mm. women in ministry. So while first Corinthians 14 or 11 carry a lot of weight, especially in Protestant circles, this is the text. Um, so, so as I, I have, um, thought about this passage a lot in my yeah, life. I'm sure. <laughs> but I think I've had kind of three main movements or three kind of aha moments about this text. Mm-hmm. So the first came while I was a junior in college and which I was thrown into the field of historical context and just the realization that especially education was really different from women than men. Mm-hmm. So that Paul's affirmation here in the beginning, let a woman learn was actually incredibly empowering. Now, I'm not saying Mm. that nobody else in the world let women learn. Of course, some pockets did, but that was not the dominant picture. And so Mm. I think as a college student, right, I'm loving college, I'm soaking in all this knowledge. I was like, you know, my life looks really different than the women who would have read this letter. That Mm. is a contextual difference that we have to take into account. And if you go on to study, the rest of this letter has a lot about false teaching. The young women are especially are kind of being pulled into this false teaching. I came to the conclusion that at least the first part of this, 11 and 12, were aimed at Ephesus. Those women needed to learn. They, mm. in fact, weren't ready to lead because they, weren't, they didn't have the faith and good understanding. And so mm. Paul is saying to them, you're not ready. I, I'm not going to permit a woman to teach or have authority. Confirmation mm. for me, it, so that educational difference was kind of my first decision. Yeah. The confirmation came for me when my eyes were opened to passages that maybe I hadn't heard much before because mm. they're not as like this pronou- This statement, I do not allow a woman to do that. That right. seems very black and white, right? Right. But other passages in which Paul actually supports the teaching ministry of women. So Mm. Priscilla and her husband Aquila instruct Apollos, and he becomes an important apostle. And Paul praises her on several instances and works with her. Mm. Um, Junia, in Romans 16, 7, is esteemed among the apostles. Now, either that means she's an apostle And definitely the definition of apostle is broader than the 12 in the New Testament. Mm. So she could have been part of this group of women mentioned in Luke 8 that follow Jesus around and support his ministry, participate with him. 
up, even if she's not an apostle, she's so esteemed by them because mm. she has preached the gospel to the degree that she's been imprisoned. And so this is a vocal proclaimer of the good news. Yeah. And most influential to me is Phoebe. Uh, mentioned at the beginning of Romans 16, Paul gives this letter to her and he says, when she comes to you, I can't come right now, but when she comes, receive her. She's a, a, a servant or a deacon. I think deacon is the better mm. translation there in the church of Kentria, Diakonos. Uh, she is a prostatus. She's a benefit, uh, a, a patron. She supported me and I want you to receive her. Now, letter carrying in the first century world is not just someone hands the letter and leaves. That person serves as the representative of the author. And so maybe she's the one to read the text out loud. Even if she doesn't and a member of the Roman church reads the text, she is the one to whom questions would be directed. Oh, hey, wow. Paul's not here. And, you know, people have had a few questions about Romans through the years. And right. the, first questions, <laughs> the first questions would have come to her. Wow. So if Paul was really against women teaching in all and every instance, he would not right. have handed Romans to Phoebe. That, for me, is definitive. Now, mm. a friend that would say, you know, women can't teach in church, they would point to the unity of teaching and authority, and they would say, well, you know, there's something about the preaching moment that's a moment of heavy authority. Mm. I, I, maybe that's an assumption, but that's an assumption that you bring to this text. This text is not, it doesn't give us explanation of Paul's statements. I think there's a lot of, interpretation that we have to bring to it. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he supports other women in gospel proclamation is very big to me. That, mm -hmm. that kind of led me to say, you know, this looks like it's focused on Ephesus in a way that wasn't true in Rome. Right. Um, so that's kind of the first realization. And then if you pay attention to put this into conversation, maybe with passages that don't mention gender, uh, this I was taught by one of my seminary professors now, Beverly Gaventa, and, and her work on Paul and women, which is fantastic. Hmm. She said, you know, if we only ever talk about the verses that mention women, we kind of focus in on these ones and we may forget really important texts in the background hmm. that never say anything about gender. For example, the text about the body and the gifts, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians right. 12. Some are of you apostles, some of you prophets and teachers, some of your, you know, hands and feet and little. Paul yeah. says nothing, nothing about gender there. So if I've it never was thought about important, that. It, it, right. If it was so important to him that in every time, in every place, in every instance, women weren't allowed to lead or teach, mm -hmm. you would think that he might put that in, in discussion there in Corinthians or Romans or Ephesians right. as well that talks about giftedness. So right. I kind of came to this, okay, education is different. I think that women can teach men because our situation is different. I have, mm. I can be educated. I'm going to follow mm -hmm. what Paul did. Let a woman learn. Okay, I've learned. So I can <laughs> teach in ways that they can't. Um, mm. And then I started thinking about this canonical picture, right? There's texts that affirm women. There's texts that don't. There's texts that don't say anything at all. And you right. kind of, different Christians have weighed those. My final realization, and this is really where I am today, and I just love the um, complexity of God's word that I can study something now for 20 plus years and still find new things and still have questions. So cool. Um, yeah. But the next statement about Adam and Eve has really proven to be quite a conceptual challenge because right. those who would say, you know, women really can't lead or teach in a church setting would say, this is not situational because he goes back to creation. Right. Uh, and so that means it's for all times and all places. So we really do have to sit with what argument is Paul making? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that he says, Adam was created first and then Eve. Okay. But what does that mean? <laughs> Right? right. And and I will appeal to my friends who teach uh, the, the Israel scriptures, the Old Testament and Genesis. And you can what statement do you what is implied mm -hmm. about um, Adam's creation first? Does that mean that he is superior in some way that he that men are natural leaders? Uh, does that mean that he's insufficient on his own and women mm. are the fulfillment of human community? 
Interesting, um, yeah. I actually think that's the better reading of the text because the whole mm. thing about here's an animal, here's an animal, that doesn't work. And then finally, oh, I hear someone that's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Yeah. And then God says it's good. But God said when the, when the man was alone, this is not good. And mm. so woman is actually the culmination. I'm not saying she's that men are women are better than men. Right. I never like any kind of pendulum swing in that direction either. But he's inadequate without her. Hmm. <laughs> and so the, the chronology, I, I sometimes read or sometimes hear people say, well, Adam was first. So that means that women, men have to lead in all spaces and men are the leaders. I'm like, well, really? Like, where are you getting that from? Yeah. That, again, is an assumption, not at hmm. all what the text says. And that's not even what Paul just says. This is this happened. Okay. And then right. he goes on to say that, uh, that Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman being deceived became a transgressor or fell into transgression. Now, it's interesting. The translation you were reading said something about Satan. Um, oh, right. Yeah. And it was that's, saying that's... Adam, who was deceived by Satan. Mm-hmm. It was not Adam was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sin was the result. I think this is the NLT that I copied it over. Oh, totally fine. Totally fine. And the NLT does kind of expound ideas, but... Um, that by Satan is not present in the Greek. So just kind of interesting, but I don't think it changes anything too much. Yeah. It's just deceived. Um, Mm. I think Paul is saying here, look, there's culpability in the fall story. And and Mm. again, you go back and read, yes. Does Eve mess up? Absolutely. Does Adam mess up? Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. Paul knows this because when he spends time thinking about the fall in Romans, he never mentions Eve once. It's only Adam hmm, that he tells the story about. Yeah. Uh, that she's not present. I mean, Adam becomes the representative of humanity. And and maybe that takes us back. Well, some people say, well, since Adam was first, he represents all. That means men lead. Again, I think there's some dots there that aren't really clear. Um, hmm. But I think he's saying, look, yeah, women, you know, Eve was deceived. I think there is a message here about the false teachers. So if these women in this community are kind of like, oh, I can kind of gossip and hang out with these false teachers and I won't be hurt by that. Paul might be saying to them, you know, Eve, she was second in creation, right? So they're close with God Mm. and even she was deceived. So watch out, be be on alert. So I believe that even the appeal to a creation could be focused on what they are experiencing. Yeah. But I also know that when Paul would make these statements and here, here, Tiffany is where I'm still working things out. I need to kind of think about this and write it. um, So it may not be as clear as I would like, but I believe that by saying Adam was not, Adam was created first and Eve fell into deception. I don't think Paul is being sexist there. I realize a lot of people read it that way and it does sound that way. Mm Mm-hmm. I just articulated a way in which you could hear those statements that isn't sexist and makes good sense of the creation narrative. Right. But I believe that in his culture, if you just put those statements out there in the first century Greco-Roman world, absolutely people are going to be like, oh yeah, women, second in creation, first in sin. They cause problems all the time. If you read any kind of literature, even from the church fathers in the Greek world, Roman world, Jewish world, Women are just assumed, not all women, but the general cultural assumption is women are weaker in body and therefore Mm -hmm. weaker in mind, weaker Mm -hmm. in virtue. They're just kind of, you know, imperfect mess ups, really. And Mm -hmm. life would be so much better if there were only men, but we have to have (laughs) women to procreate. I mean, truly, you find this over and over and over again. Wow. So I believe that in his setting, if he says these statements that are open for interpretation, this reminds me a lot about when Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman will say, oh, yeah, you're a dog. I mm, believe that Jesus right. is saying, hey, here's what people think about you. Right. Paul is saying, mm. here's what people think about women. And then he flips it on them in verse 15. Mm. But she, Eve, right, Eve as representative of women will be saved through the bearing of children. Now, that oh. is a complicated statement. Yeah. Sometimes people, I mean, <laughs> clearly it doesn't mean that those of us who have had children are going to heaven too bad for anybody. That right. Can, right. Okay. <laughs> doesn't mean that. 
um, I know as a teen, I was like, oh my goodness, I haven't had kids yet. Like, what does this first mean for me? (laughs) Exactly. Which is such a beautiful picture right away of how hard this passage is. I'm really Mm -hmm. thankful that 15 is here because that puts everyone, no matter how you interpret this passage, you're, you know, this is hard and it's Mm -hmm. not literal, right? Mm -hmm. We cannot take that statement literally or else that flies in the face of everything else the New Testament says. Right. So it cautions us against a literal reading, maybe even earlier as well. Uh, That's kind of a hermeneutic issue. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. she will be saved through the bearing of children. Some will appeal to the historical context, and I think this is helpful in that, you know, a lot of women died in childbirth. And so Greco-Roman women, in particular women in Ephesus, would pray to the goddess Artemis to to be safe and actually not die in childbirth. So maybe Mm. Paul is saying, hey, if you're worried about childbirth, don't pray to Artemis, pray to God. God's going to deliver you. So salvation, not in the sense of like salvation to God's kingdom, but salvation like you're not going to die. That's Mm -hmm. possible, but that to me would seem like a little bit of a rabbit trail because he's been talking about how we function together as a community in the church He's been mm-hmm. talking about sin and he mentioned salvation. So it seems like to me, the more natural reading is still to keep it within that subject matter of how do we relate to God rather mm-hmm. than we're talking about losing our lives maybe when we have a baby. Although there really are some good interpretations of that. So, so it could be incorrect, but here's how I would do it. I believe the singular here is really important. She will be saved, Eve is representative. You know, if she brought deception into the world, not just for Mm. everyone, but especially for women, that story of deception and transgression is going to be redeemed. How? By the bearing of a child, by the, by childbearing. So it's a reference to Jesus and not, and so, right. It's a reference to Jesus. Okay. Yeah. How do, how does God deal with sin? Jesus. Okay. Well, that's what Paul says all the time, but this is directed to women. How does God deal with sin? Jesus, and how did Jesus come? Galatians 4, 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. I believe this is a reference to Mary. That Paul is saying the problems of the world, sin, especially as they attend to women, have been reversed in Christ, and in particular, in the way God chose to have him come. So women, if you are second, if people think you're second, if people think you're open to deception and sin, Christ has changed that for you. You are redeemed in him. Wow. And therefore, women, abide in faith and love and sanctification. He's made it possible for you to develop virtue and so follow him. And so if Paul is saying in Ephesus, hey, women, you're not ready to teach, that is only temporary. Because as they see their salvation in him and grow in virtue, they, like Priscilla and Phoebe and Junia, can also become teachers and leaders. That's how I now read First Timothy 2. Whoa, find blown. I have never seen that as Mary. That is just incredible. I love the like the the movements, the three movements of your mm-hmm. understanding. I feel like that's so true. It like comes in waves to like understand yes. things more deeply. Right. Right. Wow. Okay. Oh man, I'm trying to decide where I want to go next. Sorry, so, and I talked for a long time. But oh that's no, like the it's so good. One, so yes, oh it's so good. Um, okay, we're gonna let's go to another passage since we're on mm, the sure. on the track here. Let's look at let's look at First Corinthians 14. Excellent. Another well-known yeah. passage about women's mm-hmm. roles. Um, I'll read verses 34 and 35. Sure. So it says in the NLT and so interesting that like some of the words are different in the NLT than the Greek. I'm like, I, so let me know if some are different here. Sure, I'm very sure. fascinated by that right now, but women should be silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive. Just as the law says, if they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home for it's improper for women to speak in church meetings. So yeah. would you help us understand this? Better? Yes. Yeah. So yes. here's another one that's like, <laughs> Uh, it feels like a mic drop moment, right? Uh-huh, like from the side right. That and say, a story. Like, just yeah. Me. Yes. <laughs> right. And I totally get that. Like, I, I realize that um, people may look at my life and say, um, have you read this? 
Yeah, actually, I have. Yeah, I, it, like it seems. I've so more clear. than read it. How can yeah, you do what you do. Yes, um, but this one actually, I think, is the um, least challenging. Um, oh, interesting. And here's here's a few reasons why. One is so let me give you a few suggestions of how people have wrestled with this. Yeah. In the manuscript tradition, so your your listeners will know that scripture is copying, 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 and all we have are like over five thousand copies. Right. Well, in those copies, this is a very messy place. Sometimes verses 34 and 35 are here in after verse 33. Sometimes they're at oh. the end after verse 40. What that tells people who study manuscripts, textual critics, is that it's possible that this was added in later. Because on the, on the piece of paper, the scribes would copy, but sometimes they would put marginal notes and it's really interesting. Sometimes they like have whole conversations with each other in the margins. But when a text moves around like this, it's possible that these verses were written not by Paul, but by someone later on the margin and then inserted in, but at different places as the manuscript was copied. Wow. So that's just, your, your listeners need to know that the textual history here is complicated. So that says to biblical scholars, you know, we've got to hold this one a little lightly. Uh, this one might not be by Paul. Now, I don't quite wow. adopt that because we don't have any manuscripts in which it's absent completely. Mm. Uh, you would imagine if Paul wrote something that it was not there at all, that we'd have mm -hmm. evidence of that. And so far, we don't. So mm -hmm. we have to be careful. And, um, I mean, it's still here, and then it's part of our canon. So that gets into really interesting questions about scriptural authority and original mm. documents. But, but it's present everywhere. It just moves around. Others have suggested that um, these might not be Paul's words, but the words of somebody in Corinth. So you know in mm. Corinthians, he'll, he'll say sometimes concerning that which you wrote, and then he'll right. start to quote them. In ancient manuscripts, there's no punctuation. So you would never know when someone else is being quoted because it's impossible to demarcate that. Oh, wow. Um, so this this sounds a little different than, than Paul. So maybe he's saying, well, I know that some of you are saying that women should be silent. And then, and then he goes on to say, did the word of God go out from you alone? Like, who do you think you are? No, mm. I'm going to tell you. And so that could be possible. The challenge there is that he doesn't say concerning that which you wrote which he does several times earlier in the letter as mm. a way to kind of say, I'm responding to your question or your point. Mm -hmm. So again, but here to me is the kicker. And I want to be really clear that I don't come to this text and say, well, I don't like this. So I'm going to find some way to ignore it. <laughs> right. Uh, right. That, that would be bad. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I put myself under the authority of scripture, but I come to this text and say, okay, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Well, that's really interesting because, and I'm sure we're headed here. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 11:5, Paul says, every woman who prays or prophesies should have these kind of clothing issues. So women are speaking. You cannot right. prophesy silently, but this right. is impossible. <laughs> so yeah, that's the tension. It's not, I don't like this text. It's, I want to make coherent sense of Paul and not mm. even Paul in a different letter, Paul in this letter. Right? Right. He's already said that women are talking. So this cannot be absolute silence. And in fact, mm. then we have to pay attention to the words he uses. It's not appropriate. It is, it is shameful for a woman to laleo, to speak. Well, at its most basic meaning, speech can be, I talk out loud. But there's mm -hmm. also different connotations of speech. And so people have said, maybe this is... Um, interruptive kind of speech. We can imagine that if women lacked education, they're going to have questions during the service. Mm, and actually mm -hmm. the space in which churches met was this large room called the atrium in Greco-Roman houses. It would have been very echoey. And so if mm. you have a whole kind of pocket of women who are like, oh, what does that mean? I don't know. Now, I'm not saying women are stupid. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. saying that they didn't have access to education. And right. so Paul might be saying, Hey, it's not time for you to ask your questions because your questions bounce off the wall and then we can't hear what the person is saying. Mm. Actually, in the wider section here to the prophets and those speaking in tongues, he says there's a time to be quiet. So maybe mm. that's what he's saying to the women. Don't ask mm -hmm. your questions now. Wait until you get home. Ask your husband. He 
got to be more educated than you do, he could help you work that out. Mm. So it's not that women shouldn't speak. It's that women shouldn't speak in a way that is distracting to the gospel message that's going on because Mm. they're already speaking. They're praying and prophesying just like the men are. Wow. I love that. I remember just like, I, I, I'll just brief story. I went to this church for a while with this boyfriend who really believed like the literal women should be silent in church. And I remember like you, like the women were allowed to sing, but that was it. Like they couldn't give announcements. They couldn't anything. And I remember just wrestling with these passages and being like the fruit of this in my life as someone who's always loved to speak is like, I feel like I'm dead inside, but like, I don't understand how else to understand these. So it's just like, and over the years I've learned little bits and little bits, but I just wish I had had Mm. (laughs) resources like what you're sharing, you know, to be like, Oh my goodness, this Mm. makes so much more sense. Yeah. And I guess that, yeah. Oh no, go go ahead. ahead. (laughs) I was going to say, I guess that like brings me to another question, which I was going to ask at the beginning, but I'm all over the place mm-hmm. today, um, which is what is some of the fruit that you've observed mm-hmm. when these passages are taken at face value? Mm-hmm. That's an excellent question. In fact, that phrase is so important, taken at face value, or maybe articulated a moment ago, I said taken literally, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. it says this black and white, do it. Right. Um, wow. I'm just, I'm grieved for that experience for you. And yet I know that many women share that experience Yeah, and I wouldn't want to pass judgment on the leadership of that church. I'm sure they were trained by people who trained them, right? Mm. They probably had never been exposed to a different way of understanding. Right. But yet I am a little bit, um, I would want to ask them if you say that you study scripture faithfully, how is it that you've missed first Corinthians 11, five? How have you ignored that? Mm -hmm. Or how have you ignored the names of women in scripture, Paul's fellow workers or Philip's daughters who are prophets, Acts 21, 9. Mm. You have the text in front of you. And so there is a degree of culpability that would come to someone that would be that silencing of women. Mm. They are not, it's not that they're just not reading scripture well. Right. They haven't had access to all the commentaries right. and discussion. I hear that. They may not have textual apparatus in front of them to know about the manuscripts, but they're not even reading because mm. they've not opened their eyes in this very book to a statement that would say that mm. kind of silence is incoherent to this text. So mm. there is some responsibility. And again, I would say the curse of misogyny, and I do mm. think this is part of the curse has infected the minds of many in the church. And I believe Mm. your story would be evidence of that. And the fruit is atrocious. Can you tell us about that? The curse of misogyny? I've never heard that as linked to the curse. You know, when the curse says, um, and it's very complicated, and I would want to appeal to an Old Testament colleague who could give us a whole lot more. Okay, yeah. But, you know, to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. Um, Mm. I do know there's lots of different ways to take those phrases, but just that kind of um, assumption that men have a role over women, to domineer women, to be over them, Mm. that's not creational structure. Uh, Because I I will argue pretty hard in Genesis 1 and 2 that that would be a wrong reading of Genesis 1 Mm. and 2. And I think a gracious complementarian would agree with me. They would say, Mm -hmm. well, if men lead, men lead by serving others. So I understand there can be a different way of doing that. But any kind of dominance of men and over women, that's exactly what the curse is. Mm -hmm. And that returns me back to Christ. Christ came to undo the curse. And so Mm -hmm. why, in the name of Jesus Christ, would his followers try to live into the curse? Hmm. We're gospel people. We're not cursed people. And so that kind of situation in which women are absolutely silenced, um, that is not any evidence to me of the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, can Mm -hmm. gospel work happen in that church? Of course. God is so Mm -hmm. faithful that when we mess it up royally, God Mm -hmm. still is at work, right? Right. So I don't deny, are there women there who have heard the gospel and responded? Absolutely. But Mm -hmm. that manifestation 
um, well, it just didn't even line up with First Corinthians. That's all we have to do. We don't have to go any further than that. All right. Oh, wow. That's so good. Okay. I want to look at Ephesians 5 in sure, a minute, but sure. is there any other passage that you think we should talk about mm. before we move into Ephesians 5? I do think we should say a little bit more about 1 Corinthians 11 since we're okay, still yeah. here. Let's do uh, so, it. So, yes. Thank women you. Are, women are praying and prophesying. Men are praying and prophesying. But there's also a beautiful recognition of bodily difference. It's really hard to figure out what Paul means with what people should do with their hair. And there's like huge scholarly debates about <laughs> yeah. this. I won't get into those weeds. But the, the end point is that Paul says men and women should look different. Um, mm. And again, that's very culturally. What does that look like in our culture? It's, it's complicated. And I just want to name, you know, people with gender dysphoria who say, I don't fit neatly into these categories. Mm. Um, my heart is is for them and and, mm -hmm. and and but that's not my expertise and so i would need mm -hmm. to lead to other scholars to answer that question this sure. text is focusing on male and female um and so that's kind of where i'm pointing but i don't want to ignore yeah. others yeah um, but male and female here sometimes um those who are complementarian will say to the egalitarian look you flatten all difference between men and women you make mm -hmm. us exactly the same and i really want to listen to that but I would respond and say, no, my reading of this passage is that, yes, we're doing the same thing. We're praying and prophesying, but in our embodiment, right, our bodies that God gave us, how the culture responds to men and women, how we've grown up, nature and nurture, mm -hmm. that act of praying and prophesying is going to be embodied differently if it's a man mm -hmm. or a woman. So I still respect and celebrate the differences mm -hmm. between men and women. But to the complementarian, I would say, why does difference have to be relegated to the sphere of prohibition, right? How do you display mm -hmm. difference between men and women? Here's the stuff that women can't do. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, that's where the differences manifest, it seems mm -hmm. to me. Um, right. So I uphold difference, but not in that way. Now, the other verse yeah. here that we have to listen to is, is verse 3, and this is where Paul gets started. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. So um, I think in our parlance, our discussion, we hear head and we hear in charge, yeah, right? So, oh, absolutely, yeah. Paul says that men are in charge of women. Right. Of course, you know, in the ancient world, that term head, kephale, it can be your thing on top of your neck, uh, but metaphorically, it can either be authority person in charge or source like the source of a river so hmm. like the the place from which something comes like the spring interesting okay so and there's tons of studies that say in the ancient world there's nine billion times that it's this and there's four thousand times that it's this and people count it and i'm so appreciative of that work but at the end of the day all they've established is this word can mean either thing mm. okay mm -hmm. The, the question in biblical studies is not what a word can mean, but what does it mean in this context? Mm. And in my reading, although I have a PhD student in our program that's working on this, and so he may show me that it's more complicated, and I'm open to that if it's more complicated. But Paul goes on in the next paragraph to talk about creation multiple times that Eve, the woman, came from the side of the man. So he goes oh, back to the creation wow. narrative and says, who's the source of the woman? Well, it was the man. And so because he's going to do that multiple times, source yeah. seems like the very best way to read this. Oh, wow. And that's I think so that's actually, it's theologically much less dangerous. Because if you want to, if someone would want to assert that God is the head of Christ, well, that kind oh, of sounds like you've got a hierarchy in the Trinity. And, and you probably know, Tiffany, this is like a huge discussion on the relation in the Trinity. Um, I'm very much persuaded that there is no hierarchy in the Trinity. Now, does mm. Jesus willingly come and in his incarnate self submit to the will of the Father? Of course, that's said multiple times throughout the Gospels. But... That is not a statement about his identity eternally, because ah, if we have him below right. God, 
we no longer have a trinity, Christ is not fully divine, and our salvation is void. So I don't think we want to go in that direction. Oh, my goodness. I've never thought about that that way. That it, I like, can give you a whole lot of source, literature on that. You know? Like, oh, my goodness. Right. That so, so all that to say, that's that's remains a debate. I do think source makes more sense. But even if someone wants to fight me on that and say, nope, it really is authority there. Man is the authority of woman. I, I'm, I'm going to say, fine, because the rest of the passage, men and women are doing exactly the same thing. So, you know, if you have some idea of authority or leadership, it doesn't really bother me that much because women still get to pray and prophesy just like men do. So, okay, (laughs) fine. Wow. So there's no like there's that's why first Timothy two is so much weightier um, Mm -hmm. because this passage really says nothing about church um, leadership roles uh, in the sense of it it doesn't prohibit women's authority is what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say. That makes sense. Speaking of the source, hello, my child. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) Oh my goodness, you've got little ones. Oh, I'm so glad. You know, I went through my whole program. I have three kids. I would like be holding them in class and nursing them at meetings. I love when women can do do both at the same time. I love that. Okay, so this makes me think of another question um, before Ephesians 5. Sure. (laughs) So many questions for you. Trying to keep track of time. Um, But... So I know some people would say it's okay for women to teach in church as long as they don't have the ultimate authority of being the pastor. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that? Yeah, yeah. That, and I understand that that is a a very common approach in kind of the circles of evangelicalism with which I'm familiar. And actually, mm. I'm, I'm grateful for it because I don't want women to be silenced. I want the women who are gifted as prophets and preachers to get to use that gift. But, um, but I will be frank as well that I find that the least exegetically supported argument. Interesting. Because it, it just, if Paul really said that women shouldn't teach or have authority, that's what he meant. And if he really said, well, that's only temporary and by training you can come out of it, that's what he meant. And so I have a hard time seeing in, in this text how you can take one and not the other. Um, and I, I firmly believe, and I thought, Tiffany, about our conversation today, and this felt like something important I wanted to say. I believe that right now um, the evangelical church in particular is really wrestling with the concept of authority. Um, I think all humans, men and women, are very tempted by power. And so... If, if men are saying, no, we've got to hold on to the authority, men are the head, I, I, I sense the conversation is very similar to the one that Jesus had his disciples. Hey, who's mm. going to sit on your right hand and left? We want the best seats. We want to be in charge with you. We want to, and Jesus is like, yeah, that's not how we do it. We don't lord <laughs> yeah. things over one another. We're not like fearful about holding on to our power. That's not how we roll. We serve mm-hmm. each other. I, the greatest and the least among you, I'm the servant. So that's how we do things. Yeah. I just think this like hunger to hold on to power is pretty dangerous. And church too, me too, have revealed that. Now, I want to be careful because if there are women listening who say, oh, I hear what she says about this passage. Now it's my right, right? I'm going to get power in the church. I'm going to be in charge that would equally be wrong. Mm. (laughs) And so it's, as Hebrews says about Jesus's own calling to the ministry, no one takes this honor for themselves. They are called by God. Mm. And so it's the issue of who's called into this role of leadership that's hard and heavy and you serve others. Um, That's the question. It's not who has power. Uh, I just think that's incredibly dangerous. That is so good. That is so good to keep that, this whole conversation in that frame of mind. Mm-hmm. So good. Okay, I have one more passage I was hoping you could look sure, at with us absolutely. if you're not totally exhausted yet. Oh my goodness, no, no. <laughs> this Fires is so me amazing. Um, uh, so, so Ephesians 5, I mean, that's yes. a great transition, right? I mean, like, who has power in the home? It's yeah. the same question. Yeah, that's so true. And I know like this passage, um, I'll read it in a second, but this passage, mm-hmm. like 
for years has made me so angry because then God going yeah. back to that church and that right. boyfriend, I've seen it mm. abused in crazy mm. ways. And so my husband always teases me. We're at weddings. The pastor, a man <laughs> yeah. is telling the woman to submit and I'm like sitting uh-huh. there like rigid oh, and my husband's like totally. laughing, but totally. yeah, it's just, I, for a long time hated this passage until mm-hmm. I came mm-hmm. to understand mm-hmm. it a little better. And I'm sure I'm about to understand it even more. <laughs> so I'll read just a few verses of it sure. and, um, then you can tell us about it. So it says, mm-hmm. and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ for wives. This means submit to your husbands as to the Lord for a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Then he talks for a little while about husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church. And then it ends with, so again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you help us understand this? Yes, it too. It's really interesting to me. We've had this conversation now about ministry and now we're turning to marriage. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, these are distinct issues. But in others, they overlap. A question that Mm -hmm. we've received, my husband and I, in our own life is, wow, how is it that I am the pastor of my husband? And again, Mm -hmm. here underneath that, there's that concern about power, right? And I Mm -hmm. actually think about my role as a minister. I'm just serving people. I'm at the bottom. So I'm not Mm -hmm. over anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But people ask, like, how does that work out? So there is a relation between them. I think it's vitally important to pay attention to the earlier part of Ephesians 5. I'll call attention to verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself as an offering and sacrifice for our sins. Everyone is told to love, to partner or to pattern themselves after Jesus Christ and love. And then in Ephesians 5.21, everyone is told to submit. Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Mm. So, you know, we're about to read where Paul then says women submit, men love. But he's already said everybody's supposed to do both. So I think that's a really important place to start. Yeah, we forget that. Yeah. And I I, uh, often say to students, sometimes Bibles will put a sense break, like a paragraph break in between 21 and 22. And like 21 is kind of attached to what's above. And then 22 is like household codes or marriage. Right. That is egregiously wrong. And I give you absolute permission to take a Sharpie and mark out that heading. Whoa. Because the whole passage hangs on 21. Submit to one another. Verse 22 doesn't even have a verb. It just says, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's not a verb there. And so it has to be connected to 22 to even like complete the sentence. Wow. So now that doesn't mean that you might embrace how I think about my own marriage, but you've got to get the things in the right order. And it starts Mm. with 21 and mutual submission. Mm. Now I do think a person like myself would have to answer, well, why does he go on to say that women should submit to their husbands as they submit to Christ? That seems rather comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And it is. And I, I would say, I believe in submission. I believe in submitting to my husband. I believe in respecting him as I re- respect Jesus. And actually, mm-hmm. that's not different from how I view and am instructed to view all humans. Right? We're all... Mm-hmm. We're t- Everyone should, we should see Mm -hmm. the image of God, Christ's image in everyone. I appeal to Matthew 25. I mean, there Jesus says, when you treated the prisoner and the hungry and the naked, you treated me. So we're supposed to see Jesus and respect Jesus and everyone. So that's really no Mm -hmm. different from how I should conduct all of my life. Now, admittedly, my relationship with, with him is distinct from all others. Right. But it's not a new teaching. It's not something different. But really, the bulk of the passage is what men should do. I've had young men write on this for their exegesis paper, and they always say, oh my goodness, the weight that comes to men is so heavy. In the Greco-Roman world, for men to be told to love their wives, wives were property. They didn't have Hmm. to love them. For men to be told to value their wife's body as they value their own, the male body was the body of perfection. That's what's celebrated Hmm. in art. And so for them to say, actually, this female body, you need to treat it with the same respect, that's Hmm. radical. 
So a lot more ways upon the man. Um, I think ultimately it's also important to include verse 32, where Paul says, This mystery is great, but I am talking about Christ in the church. I think we can learn lessons for human marriage here, but the ultimate point is he's getting us to see how amazing Christ's sacrifice is for us. This is a picture that's meant to draw our eyes up, not down. Now we learn about the human, but it's meant to focus on him. And then finally, I'll say this. Um, On the issue of ministry, I recognize that God can be at work powerfully in churches that don't allow women to do all things. But I also believe that allowing women to do all things is the best reading of the text and the Mm. most healthy and the best picture of the incarnation. Mm. On marriage, though, I'm a bit more um, agnostic. I know that marriages can be healthy if they use the language of we're complementarian, right? Mm-hmm. They would say, you know, we really do see the husband as the head of this home. That's great. If he's being the head of the home like Jesus, cool. He's serving. He would do anything for the family. He would give his life for the family. Great. Um, mm-hmm. I have several of my closest friends would articulate their marriages in that way. Fine. Um, but if you are like myself and my husband say, Jesus is in charge of both of us. And Mm -hmm. and I often sometimes joke a little bit. Jesus is really good at being Jesus. And Jesus doesn't need my husband, Lance to be Jesus. Like he's pretty much got that covered. And so Jesus (laughs) can be on, you know, the authority in our marriage and we are partners together, which is Mm -hmm. also totally textually supported. Mm. So it's fine. I say to my students, don't get in a fight about this. Um, Even the data shows, I took a class on sociology of gender in um, my grad program, evangelicals who use either term but have a healthy marriage, right? They're like functioning. Uh Their marriages look almost exactly the same. It is a very interesting question to ask a complementarian. Great, you believe in male headship. And I don't mean this in like an attacking way. It's just a good question. When have you seen that happen? And sometimes they'll say, oh, well, you know, if there's a tension, like if men and women can't agree, you know, men really get the final say, okay, tell me when that happened. Oh, yeah, I can't think of an example because when we have hard things, we just talk about them. Okay, Mm -hmm. well, so do I. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. it really is, I think, in a healthy marriage, a rare thing to have the headship of men play out in any kind of tangible way. I mean, maybe Mm -hmm. they would say, like, our husband leads devotions or something. Well, fine. That's fine. Um, but that's not it. Now I will say that. So I say, however you want to live your marriage, I believe that both can be healthy. Mm-hmm. I will add this because I do believe this frankness is important. I think there's more risk and more danger on a side that says one human has more power over another. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also known many complementarian marriages, which have ended in divorce or abuse because mm-hmm. the man got on a power trip. Now, yeah. does that have to happen? Absolutely not. Can there be healthy complementary? Of course there can. I just see less risk on the even uh, egalitarian side. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you could have a couple that's like, I wash the dishes three times. You have to wash the dishes three, like tit for tat, 50-50. <laughs> uh-huh. um, we've been married for almost 22 years, and, and, and many of our friends would identify in this way. Not all, but many. And their marriages are just super awesome. So I've mm-hmm. never seen in a Christian context, Uh, People who are wanting to serve each other, that the egalitarian, it it just seems to me that there would be less risk on the egalitarian side. Now, someone Mm -hmm. might say, but is that scripturally faithful? And I hope I've demonstrated that, yes, it is. Mm, That is so good. Wow. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time, and this has been just truly amazing. But I have one last question for you, which might be a huge can of worms right here, but I'm going to ask it anyway. (laughs) Um, So... My last question is, I know that one of your areas of expertise is feminist theology. And I was so curious about that. Would you tell us just like a little bit about what that is? And going along with that, I know some of my, I've done polls on my Instagram asking, you know, Mm. about feminism. And I think I had like 60% of my viewers think that you cannot be a feminist and Mm. a Christian who believes the Bible. So I'm wondering like what your response would be to that. Yeah. And that, I I understand where that's coming from. So I've loved the chance to study feminism and it comes in waves. And so the first argument is women should be able to vote. Uh, And then the second Mm. argument in the 60s is women should have a place at the table, uh, right? In Mm. business, in politics. 
And some aspects of that argument, the second wave in the 60s, were pretty vitriolic, angry. Actually, I think women had a lot to be angry about. Mm -hmm. um, but also anti-Christian. Uh, mm -hmm. And so sometimes feminism looks like an attack upon the Bible. Well, these verses are really oppressive to women, so I'm just not going to. I'm not going to be a Christian. I'm not. I'm going to throw out the Bible. Is mm. that a possibility in feminism? Totally, it's there. And sometimes the loudest voices are the ones that get quoted, right? Mm. Or the extremes are the ones that get quoted. So I understand that from your from your listeners. Feminism at base, and this was a college professor. Shout out to Dr. Carolyn Cole at Oklahoma Baptist University, and Dr. Sherry Rainey, who taught this amazing Western Civ class. And they mm. taught us that feminism is just simply the assertion that women are human too. Mm. And again, that may strike us as unnecessary in the time in which we live, but believe me, any time pre-1950, that was a pretty radical statement mm. in any parts of the world. Women were never considered fully human. And so feminism is saying, yeah, w women are human. And so I would proudly identify as a feminist, um, mm. but of course I need to explain that because people mm -hmm. take different mm -hmm. kind of mindsets of what that means. Now, feminist sure. theology then, a healthy feminist theology, or I'm sorry, that's, that's a bit uh, charged. I should say an evangelical feminist theology, which is the subset that I would identify with, says, I take the Bible as my authority, and I know my God is good, and I know my God values women because uh, of many things, including chiefly the incarnation. And so mm. how can I understand this text from my position and so really, it's a situated reading of the text. Hey, I care about women's issues. And so how can I read the scripture kind of, or not focused, but with that mindset? The mm. great thing about theology is that now people totally realize nobody comes to the text as like a blank slate. I'm right. just doing pure theology. Well, no, you're not. Like yeah. <laughs> wherever you grew up or whatever ethnicity mm -hmm. you are or whatever gender you are, you read scripture through those lenses. It is impossible mm. to be objective. But mm. we also can move past our lenses by listening to others. Mm. And so as we read from people uh, across the globe, from different parts of time, um, the socially located theology is so beneficial because they're going to show us things that maybe our blinders didn't allow us to see. So mm. really, no one need be afraid of feminist theology. Number one, feminism is the assertion women are human. And number two, that reading is just, hey, I want to pay attention to women. Um, and, and maybe a good example of that is a feminist reading of Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 calls attention to the fact that Paul hasn't said anything about gender, right? But if you mm. didn't have those questions in mind, you might not have noticed that in the text. Mm. Mm, that's so good. Wow. Thank you so much. I have just learned so much today. <laughs> I Praise love God. it. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you have some resources that you might recommend my listeners check oh, out if they want to learn more yes. or if you want to email them to me, I can link them down below. Sure. No, I'm, I'm happy to mention a few. And really, okay. once they start getting books, they'll see that the it's just huge. There's so yeah. much. Uh, this one happens to be sitting on my desk, so I'll show it. Um, this is Ooh. a nice articulation of a lot of essays from the perspective that men and women are equal not only in value before God, but also can be equal in roles. Mm. Um, that's and a, that was the called third discovering, edition, discovering discover Biblical Equality. Um, okay. New out. Um, Cynthia Westfall's Paul and Gender is magnificent. Oh, and we very just got detailed. that. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. And she's actually the one that talks about the Artemis cult and, and survival and childbearing. Ah, so okay. there's a lot of insight there. So I want to be really clear. I respect that. I, I don't ultimately uh, grab onto that as the chief interpretation of Timothy 2, but I've learned so much from her. Mm. Lucy Pepiot, uh, Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, is excellent. She's a British scholar. I use that in my classes, and it's very succinct, easy to read. Mm. Um, she's very bold. So some of my students felt she was a little bit brash, um, but just kind of knowing that is good. Mm. Um, those are ones that I frequently recommend. Awesome. Um, if we want to study history, Lynn Kohick has two volumes, one co-written with Amy Hughes about women in the time of the New Testament and then women mm. in the area, the era of the patristics. And so that's wow. so beneficial. That's a story that I think we often don't know. 
Um, mm, yeah. yeah. So. Wow. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I have loved getting to talk to you and you guys can check out more of Dr. Peeler's work at amypeeler.com. And I'll see you all next week for another episode of Outgrowing the Good Christian Girl. Thank you so much. I hope that that spoke to you as much as it did to me. I'm so excited, so psyched about this episode. So I can't wait to talk to you again next week. I'm going to share some of my story. James and I are going to share our own development of our views on women in the church and so excited to share our journeys and stories with you. See you then.